Hello, I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And tonight, we are going to talk about a very important topic. It's about regaining our personal freedom, which goes with our responsibility and is based in our human dignity. And we need to rescue it from a culture and an ideology that is trying to drag us into a nightmare of dystopia with misplaced values that are increasingly incoherent in their meaning and having no foundation. So before we get to that very important topic for our society today, we want to talk briefly with EWTN's Jack Williams about some special events coming up that you don't want to miss. Jack, what have you got for us? Well, Father Mitch, because of the pandemic, you know, we have an annual radio conference yes. where we bring all of our affiliates from around the country, yes. as well as people that are interested in learning what it might take to bring Catholic radio to their area. And we have a big conference here in Birmingham. Sure. Well, we haven't been able to have that for the last couple of years because of the pandemic. It's been canceled a couple of times, but we're taking the show on the road for the first time ever. And we're having a radio conference in 2022 at the end of September in Phoenix, Arizona. So on Thursday, September 29th, we are going to leave the downtown Phoenix area and head about 45 minutes out of town to Tonopah to where Mother Marie Andre, mm -hmm. uh, formerly of the Poor Clares of Perpetual Adoration in Hansville, now of the Poor Clares of Perpetual Adoration in Tonopah, where they've built a beautiful uh, monastery. Yes. And we're going to spend the day in retreat uh, with uh, Mother and the Sisters. Uh, with some help from the friars, and we'll have some talks and some uh, the, the holy sacrifice of the mass. Confessions sure. will be heard, and we'll just have a we'll kick everything off with a nice retreat day with the sisters in Tonopah. Yes. Then on Friday, September 30th, we'll be back in downtown Phoenix at the convention center, and we're going to have a day of um, uh, professional development and some inspirational talks. Mm -hmm. um, we'll have a keynote from Ro Father Robert Spitzer. Uh, your confrere in the society yeah. and um, many people speaking. We'll also have some breakout rooms uh, where uh, Steve Sponskowski, who is our director of affiliate relations uh, here at the network, will talk to affiliates one-on-one. -on -one. We'll have our engineering department there to help with any questions that they have. But most importantly, we'll be there to talk to people who might think that perhaps uh, our Lord is tugging on their heartstrings a little bit to get Catholic radio going in their area if they don't have an AM or an FM station. Sure. That night, on Friday night, we'll have our annual awards dinner and banquet, yeah. which will be beautiful, and we'll recognize a lot of our affiliates for some anniversaries and some work that they've done during what now is the last three years. Normally, it would be during the last year, but it's worth the last three years uh, for this particular event. And then on Saturday, October 1st, the EWTN family celebration will be at the exactly. same venue. Exactly. And so we'll be able there, and there's, there's all sorts of wild and crazy people that are going to be at the family celebration. Mm -hmm. um, my wife is going to be there. Yes. You're going to be there. Yes. Marcus Grodi is going to be there. Yes. So I want to encourage anybody who is interested in any way whatsoever in Catholic radio and maybe bringing Catholic radio to their, uh, to their area to log on to EWTNCRC.com. That's EWTNCRC.com. And they'll find all the details and everything they need to do right there. Wonderful. All right. Well, there's something to look forward to. And I can finally leave. I, I woke up with you. 
in uh, mass at seven o'clock. We did radio in the afternoon. We're doing television at night. And now it's time to go rest and be with your sweet, wonderful wife, There John you go. Hatt. I like it. That's good. <laughs> Thanks, Father. All right, we'll be back in a couple of minutes with tonight's guest, so please stay with us. guest tonight believes that for the last 200 years, modern humanity has been living off the moral and intellectual capital of an earlier Christian worldview. But he says that we are now at a time when that capital has been spent. And we are left with two alternatives. Either there is a God who has ordered the world and given us a moral law to follow. Or the universe is the product of accidental physical forces from which human civilization has somehow sprung up. That second option is what the atheist believes. And it requires us to discount all notions of objective morality. You also have to get rid of the idea of a soul and free will. And you also have to toss out any notion of human dignity and rights because each of these depends on natural law. Now, to tell us more about it is the author of a book entitled After the Natural Law how the classical worldview supports our modern and political values. He comes to us from the Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indiana University. So please welcome John Lawrence Hill. Thank John, you. John, welcome. Good to be here. Thank Good you. Good to have yeah. you with us. Good to have you. I was about to get up and, and leave because I said, you've said everything I was going to say. I mean, you, you, that was a brilliant encapsulation. So well, I, I, thank, I, I, thank you. My work is done here. But Okay. Well, let's go. No, we, got, we can't go home because one of the things I, I would like our audience to understand about you is that you don't come to us from being raised in a Catholic school with the nuns teaching you about natural law and positive law and revealed law, none of that. You, tell us about your own background first so people yes. understand how you got to this position. Yes, well, I, <clears throat> I was an atheist and uh, I... Uh, spent my time in school trying to be a consistent atheist. I, I went to college to study philosophy uh, because I wanted to know the truth, whatever that might mean, and, um, and learned that, that what atheists believe, mm -hmm. what atheists believe is, of course, that the universe is essentially material, that there's no spiritual element. Mm -hmm. All there is is atoms in the void, is uh, 
Democritus said, or one of those early guys. So, um, so, but in, in the, the result of that belief is that if everything is just physical, then our existence is a complete accident. Oh yes, it's it's uh, the product of visionless forces, and I just came to see uh, increasingly the contradictions uh, in in everything that uh, that I believed, and and I want to say philosophy is 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 uh, in some ways um, the bad state that it's in today. Um, philosophy brought me to to God, and uh, but of course it was an earlier philosophy. Um, I, I began to see that. Uh, I'm a law professor. We write about human rights. We write about uh, uh, di human dignity. But I began to see that that what I believed was in no way consistent with that. That you could not uh, believe in human rights in any meaningful sense, at least, if there isn't a transcendent moral foundation, something that gives those rights meaning, whether or not a particular regime happens to instantiate those rights. And one of the things about that is to have these rights born into, I mean, like the founders said in the Declaration of Independence, yeah. that these are inalienable. unalienable rights yes. given by the Creator. This is put into reality. Yes, yeah. Our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence at least, was very much premised on natural law ideas. Jefferson was uh, a, an advocate of the natural law, um, and these were ideas that came from John Locke a century earlier. John Locke's ideas were derived in turn from Aquinas, though by the time we get to Locke, the ideas, you mean Locke and other thinkers changed them in various ways. But mm -hmm. the bottom line is, is that the framers recognized that if we had to give human rights or constitutional rights any real significance, they have to be based on something deeper than, hey, the government gave them to us. They have to be there before mm -hmm. the government, so to speak. Yeah, and, and part of the importance of that, too, is if the government gives you your rights... The government can take them away. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. just a necessary principle. But if God yes. gives each individual his or her rights, the government can't give them and can't take them away. That's, that's, that's right. And, and along those same lines, I mean, it's it just fascinating to me the extent to which, I mean, I called myself a liberal for a long time. In a sense, I still am in the an extended sense. I'm a classical liberal. Um, but I found it fascinating that most modern liberals believe in freedom. They want the right to do this and the right to, the, to do that. But those freedoms are based on the idea that we make free choices. Liberalism, at its deepest, is based on this concept of free will. And yet, modern liberals, at least those who are secular, progressive, secular liberals, they have no foundation, no, no way to, to believe in some capacity of free will. What is that? I mean, uh, uh, well, uh, yeah. They even have a problem believing in reason. Yeah. For this reason, um, if everything in the universe developed, you know, it's all physical. Yes, yeah. And everything happened just by a series of accidents and it developed in mm -hmm. this way. If that's true, then the theory that everything happened by accident is itself an accident. <laughs> 
That's 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 true. Uh, everything is an accident. That there's no basis for. Uh, for morality, of course, no transcendent foundation. And there's no basis for believing that everything is an accident, yeah. because that's an accident, <laughs> that, too. That, that's right. I mean, part of the natural law idea really is that things make sense because there is an order to the world. And there is an order to the world because it's been, in a sense, ordered that way, and we've been hardwired to that order. We have uh, our conscience, our reason, are the two ways in which, among others, that we're hardwired into the natural law. Mm -hmm. But without the natural law, logic itself doesn't make sense. When you, t you hear about postmodernists who want to say, um, well, uh, I can believe X and not X at the same time, um, you know, you, you, uh, you have to say, ultimately, ev everything follows from a contradiction. And uh, so ultimately, what the, the what the flight from natural law has led us to is sort of these postmodern, post-atheist, post-post-post mm -hmm. developments where nothing makes sense. And now we're at a point where people are embracing this. It's all just absurd. Of course, the existentialists said that 50 years ago. It's all absurd. Let's uh, let's just have a party. Well, this shows up in schools, and I, yeah. I think a lot of folks have had their eyes opened to what's going on in some of the school systems yeah. where teachers will not say that certain math answers are ever incorrect. If you believe that two plus two equals five, that's acceptable yeah. Yeah. in some school er districts. Yeah, yeah. And grammar is whatever you make it to be. All the, the, there's no it, and none of it reality. Makes, none of it makes sense. I, I had a discussion with a, a postmodernist uh, thinker recently, and she said, "I don't believe in law. Prove to me that logic is uh, is true." I said, "Well, do you want a logical explanation or an illogical explanation? If you want a logical explanation, you're already assuming logic is true. If you want an illogical explanation, this is a table. Therefore, logic is true. I mean." It, the point is you can't, we, uh, there's no way to escape the, the sort of the foundational nature of, of logic, of math, mm -hmm. and, of, and of morality. They're all built into the same order in different mm -hmm. ways, but they're all part of it. And I, I think while it's almost silly to say that two plus two can equal four, but at the same time can also equal five, which is yeah. was being said yeah. in some of the public schools. Yeah, um, that that was going on, and yeah. it was reported in the media. But that's just training. It comes into a, a very serious play when it has to do with letting criminals who have been accused of very serious crimes out because, well, maybe they're not guilty, maybe yeah. they are, and so we'll just let them be, and then yeah. they go and repeat the crime. This has yeah. very practical Oh, very much so. Well, this is one of the things that led me back to this is in, in studying law. I mean, if, if there is no soul, there is no free will. I mean, if you're a determined, if you're a materialist, what is it that materialists believe? Everything we do is a product of physics, biology, environment, but we never really make a choice. The mm -hmm. idea that human beings make a choice is such a wildly mystical, I mean, Descartes said, it's the only thing that makes us like God.
Uh, he may not have been right it was the only thing, but it certainly was the thing that most made us that way. Yes. But, but if there is no free will, there is no real responsibility for anything we, we do. And if there is no responsibility, we have to rethink our institutions of punishment. All of the things that we see playing out now uh, in terms of the new ideas of criminal law, uh, ideas of punishment, um, the, the, even the refusal to sentence people who commit theft or other serious crimes to mm -hmm. prison that we see going on in places like San Francisco, LA, Philadelphia. These are all examples that, that the playing out of this deeper intellectual theme. We're watching it before our eyes. Yeah, that it's no longer a, a, a serious crime to steal anything $950 or less. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and unless you're the person who owns the $950 worth of stuff they're stealing. Yeah, of course. And your business goes out of business. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the reality. Very much uh, so. Yes. Uh, what's going on. So, again, this has very practical ramifications. Yeah. Now, here, one of the things that you do in your book, and I, I want to recommend it to people, um, some a few years ago we had uh, uh, Dr. Edward Faser uh, on here, yes, yeah. uh, talking about similar issues. But you talk about the basis in thought, how thinking developed from the earliest philosophers to the present, and to see how they really helped us understand our basic dignity and therefore rights. Yes. This idea, this tradition that we call the natural law tradition, probably really got started by the Stoic thinkers in the, the Hellenistic era, so 200 BC. Um, but Aristotle, a couple of hundred years before, the 150 years before that, was his thought plays into the tradition. Christian thinkers, of course, pick up on it. And by the time we get to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, we have this development, a, a really complex development uh, of this. But it's a tradition that built on itself uh, over time and that was built on mm -hmm. um, and that responded to circumstances of the times, that responded to objections. Um, and one of the beautiful things about the natural law is that it says human reason is is a good thing, it's part of our nature, it's part of how we know that there is an order to the world. Uh, um, reason's essential. Our, th there isn't a conflict between faith and reason. Right. The two are, are, are very much compatible. Yep. And that's what brought me to faith was, again, it was, uh, Thomas Aquinas says somewhere that philosophy is, is like a ladder, maybe Wittgenstein said that, but it's like a ladder that we climb up to the roof and then we can kick the ladder away once we've sort of seen the vista and we have faith. And, and, and at any rate, it was for me a light that led me to my faith and uh, very important in that way. It, it is, and uh, again, we, we have people who, are arguing that the use of reason is so masculine oriented that we have to get rid of it. Mm. You know, uh, that, that's been another argument that's been put Except out there. Except the, the, the same people will tell you, but there is no masculine or feminine. We've uh, transcended that category too. <laughs> right. And see, that's where these contradictions yeah. that, you know, it's not that the world was created 
uh, random and in chaos. It's rather that these thinkers are creating chaos yeah. in a, a, a world that has more order. And there's one uh, paradox or contradiction after another in, in this sort of so-called progressive worldview. I mean, yeah. Now, here's the question. What do we do about it? We're, we're watching um, a, a lot of chaos developing. Uh, people are, you know, sometimes objecting mm. to the intellectual chaos being taught. They're small children. And then they are identified as terrorists when yeah. they go to school board meetings. Yeah. I think that's simmering down a bit. Yeah. But, you know, this was, uh, you know, if you disagree with these folks, yeah. you're the terrorist. Yeah, right, right. And you're just, instead of just being a parent who wants their kid to have a good education, yeah. how do we start approaching these problems that are now, you know, going through our culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, these, these uh, we have to push back, first of all. I mean, um, but many of these things are boogeymen because once you confront the person on the other side with the paradox or the contradiction or ask them, could you explain exactly why you believe X or Y? Nine times out of 10, they can't do it or they don't do it well. And even when they do it well, there's a response. And, and so it's a matter of standing up and telling the truth. Um, yep. it's, it, that's really what it comes down to, not being afraid. I think that's key. One, one of the aspects that I sense is a lot of these people are bullies. Yeah. They want to shout you down because they can't argue. They don't, sometimes they're too dumb. Yeah. Sometimes they don't want you to know how bad their reasoning really is. Mm -hmm. And they just try to force us. That, th this is going on right now with the, 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 what they perceive as a threat that Roe versus Wade might be overturned. Mm. And that if they, they, they're using bully tactics, yeah. you know, to, uh, to against us. And that's one thing, we have to stand up I to mean, the and, and anybody who studied the French Revolution, certainly uh, after two or three years, understands, understands these, this sort of phenomenon, is that as these things fall apart, um, you know, people are set free, in essence, to say whatever they want, to become bullies, as you say, which I mm -hmm. think is probably actually a, a generous phrase. Sometimes it's much worse than that. The French Revolution, we see it again in the 1917 Revolution in, in, in Russia. Right. We see it everywhere where these ideas of, of order break loose. And the more I've, I've been teaching, the more I've come to see how slanted our textbooks are, how slanted the, the discourse is. Oh, absolutely. Um, even in, at the law school level, uh, constitutional law is a top, topic I teach. And as I've grown and, you know, sort of, I mean, I, I started out, uh, quite frankly, you know, I'd sort of imbibed this sort of liberal progressive view when I began teaching. And it took 20 years of thinking and reading and writing to think my way out of the, uh, the labyrinth. And, yeah. uh, and, and then when you, you know, when you do, of course, then you have to be ready to, to 
to respond to take on all comers when people get angry. Yes. And, you know. Yes. Yeah. And I think that this is a, a big part of what we're asking people to do yeah. is learn to not merely stand up. You don't want to be a bully back. Right. That's not the right answer. Exactly. Having an answer is the right answer. Yes. And teaching other people how to think about rights. Exactly. And obligations. And to do it kindly and civilly and to point it out in a way that recognizes their dignity as well. Mm -hmm. But not to be cowed either. It's a middle way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, sometimes I think we need to watch more old-time cowboy movies <laughs> where, that, where they stood up for what was right because it was right. Yes. Uh, Every year when I would teach Roe v. Wade, because of course that was part of the constitutional law curriculum, uh, no matter how much you may have tried or I may have tried to just stick to the law, explain the cases as they've developed, someone would enable, inevitably take offense at something uh, if they sensed any sympathy even toward the pro-life uh, position mm -hmm. and inevitably slam, you know, every year because someone slams their book down and walks out of the classroom. And the last time it happened, I said, all she had to do was make an argument. And the whole class bust out laughing because, you know, sometimes just a little humor to point out, you know, these temper tantrums are not, uh, make, if you have something to say, make an argument. Mm-hmm. Which is what you try to train students to do. Yeah. To use reason, come, come up with your position. Yes. But we'll engage. Absolutely. This isn't propaganda. Yes. Yes. And that's one of the other things that we have to remember. It's not propaganda. It's thinking through with facts and use of logic based on real experiences, real things. If there not is such a thing as truth, and there is, then, then saying it is not propaganda. It's speaking the truth. Right. Probably, you know, it's only those people who believe there is no truth, but we're going to force our truth onto you, our, our small t truth onto you, right. who believe that, uh, you know, the, who will call what the other person thinks propaganda. It's, in terms of learning how to think through these issues, where would you suggest people begin? How would, would be the best way for them to start to learn how to think through the issues of truth that show that there is right and wrong? It's not, well, that's your opinion, this is my opinion. Right. Which is no, right. how do we find truth? Look, look for good books, first of all, that do that. Uh, study philosophy, but not the kind of philosophy that's reigned in the universities for the past 100 years, uh, because that's trash. Um, uh, go back to the classics, go back to the classical tradition, Aristotle, Plato, um, the, the, uh, the uh, philosophers of the Christian t tradition, and even the early moderns who continue to, I mean, they may have gotten off the track in some ways, but, uh, but study philosophy, the best of philosophy. And so folks know, uh, you can get copies of Aristotle and Plato off the internet. Yes, yeah. You don't have to go buy, if, if you would prefer just to have it in your computer, you can download and, their works. And if it's intimidating, I, mean, I always encourage people to read the primary sources, read the Aristotle, but if it's intimidated, intimidating at first, and it, and it is because these thinkers were engaged with such deep 
heavy duty issues that it, it can be intimidating. I'd say start with good secondary sources. Uh, Mortimer Adler's 10 Philosophical Mistakes. It's a great book just yeah. to get you thinking, just to get you started to think about uh, this mm -hmm. and uh, move on from there. And there's a, a, a Jesuit priest named Frederick Copleston. Mm, the greatest. I have such admiration for, yes. Because he did the most complete philosophy, or history of philosophy yes. ever done. It's multiple vi volumes. Yeah. It's in paperback. Yes. Very inexpensive. Yeah. And he was fair to everybody. Yes, indeed. He really showed all, you know, what they were, he wanted you to understand what they were thinking, not what he thought of it. It's a 10 volume or so series and it's, it, it and I, my, I gained so much from it, even after having a doctorate in philosophy, I learned so much from Copleston. And, uh, and you can Google a debate that Copleston had with atheist Bertrand Russell Yes. around 1948. It's fascinating to hear their voices, to hear the way they approach things. They're both brilliant men, one a believer, the other an atheist. And they, the, the exchange between, at the end of the day, um, they have to agree to, <laughs> to disagree. Uh, Russell could never lay a hand on Copleston. No. Uh, uh, it's, it's really and, a brilliant debate. And Bertrand Russell was one of the best of the philosophers of yes. atheism. Yes. He was one of the most logical yep. of the atheistic philosophers. Yeah. Uh, and he still couldn't undo Copleston. No. No. Yeah. No. So so this these are some of the things. And then when it comes to applying now you are applying this mm. kind of logic and human rights and human dignity to the teaching of the law, uh, and especially the constitutional law. So, mm -hmm. so folks understand when you teach constitutional law, what do you, you make them read the Constitution, right? Of course, yes, yes. yes. Not all my colleagues do, but uh, because for some of them the Constitution begins at 1937. But, uh, but no, I, of course we do constitutional history. We start with the Constitution, the Federalist, Anti-Federalist debates, the underlying philosophy of the Constitution mm -hmm. uh, is this mix of classical liberal and Republican, classical Republican ideas. But, and we fo we follow it through to the the modern era. Because in, I've, I've done an a informal survey and only, just asking lawyers I met, it's mm. not any kind of scientific survey, but it was interesting. The only lawyers I interviewed, uh, meeting them on airplanes, things mm. like that, the only ones I interviewed uh, with the question, did your constitutional law professor require your class to read the Constitution. Hmm. Only two did, and they had both gone to Ave Maria Law School. <laughs> they were the uh, only two. That's really remarkable. I mean, yeah, um, they didn't. They read about cases. Yes, it's, but one. It's law like taking professor, a class in Shakespeare without ever reading Shakespeare, but just reading the secondary literature on him or something. Right. You know, it's it, uh, it, it's it's crazy. But one law professor of constitutional law told me sitting on an airplane yeah. that um, it was against school policy Ugh. to require the law students to read the Constitution. That's, that's mind-boggling. 
It's absolutely, it's turned everything upside down. The problem is that the Constitution is a foundation for us. It is a lawful foundation. Uh, it can be changed by amendment. Um, it can be changed in, uh, in, not fundamentally, but of course courts can t apply principles to new things. But it's the foundation. But these people want to take the Constitution and make it a tool. They want to use it for purposes of social engineering. And so the only thing that really matters to them is to use the, you know, the, the cases that they like, or maybe even the cases they hate as a sort of a counterexample. Little story, when, when, I, when I went to law school at Georgetown University 35 years ago, um, and I wanted to learn constitutional law, my professor one day, a student asked him, uh, Professor, you seem not to like the result in this case. Uh, what, would your, what, would you, what would you have done? What would you have decided if you were on the Supreme Court? And the professor, without any sense of uh, regret or, or qualms, said, well, I would decide this case as, I've decided every, as I would decide any other case. I would pick the conclusion most consistent with the Communist Manifesto and follow it. And I was a naive uh, second-year law student. I, I never thought I would hear anything like that. I thought, well, they always couch their thing to the extent that I may not agree with them. Um, the sleight of hand is, is it's, you know, it's under the table, so to speak. This was out in the open, and, uh, and, and it, uh, it was sort of my entree to, the, to the, you know, this world, but it, it was mind-boggling. That person, by the way, now holds a very prestigious chair at, at Harvard. Yeah in that the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx mm. is the Which was basis. written 60 years after the, 50 years after the Constitution, by the way. Can't right. have anything to say about the meaning right. of the Constitution. But it has something about the meaning of this now Harvard law professor. Yeah. Got to watch where you go to law school. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with your questions and comments and from our studio audience, so please stay with us. Speaking to John Lawrence Hill, and we're talking about topics related to his very fine book, After the Natural Law, How the Classical Worldview Supports Our Modern Moral and Political Values. This book is available at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 401. 172, 4172. <laughs> and uh, I recommend it because it gives a great overview of the important development of philosophical issues and how it became relevant to modern day life in America. All right, let's take some questions. Mm. We st I'm going to start off with Anne in uh, Massachusetts. Is that where you are, Anne? Okay. Am I on the air now? Yeah, you're on the air now. All right. Father Mitch. 
I really respect everything you do and everything you say because you know what you're talking about, and you don't defy the law of God. You want to enforce it. And your guest is right on target. He's right on target, and I appreciate everything he said. Now, I want you to correct me and see if I'm wrong. Okay. I work, I work with um, an atheist, and I work with a born-again Christian and all that, and they take delight in always ridiculing me because I'm a Catholic. And, why, and the worst thing when they say to me, you're, so, you're such a hypocrite because how can God be everywhere and do what you did? I said, listen, every single thing that's on this earth is created by God. So the scientists want to scrutinize it. They want to, but there's only one answer, and I want to see if I'm on the right page. I says, the answer I give is this. When you look up at the sky and there's one sun, just one sun, that one sun shines on every piece of earth in the universe. Now, do you think that the sun is more powerful than God. He created it for a purpose. So he is more powerful than the sun. Today he's here, tomorrow he's there, but he's everywhere. His spirit is throughout the world. And anyone that defines the natural law is a hypocrite, not me. I'm a Catholic, I'm proud of it, and I want to die as a Catholic. I don't scrutinize anything. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. And every- exactly. Yeah. No, and, you know, you've got your Catholic faith. And I don't know why they would call you a hypocrite mm. because mm. God is everywhere. Mm. You know, we're sinners and you know, God knows our sin, but he also, because he's everywhere, he also offers me forgiveness everywhere and anywhere I am. Not just saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. No, he forgives me and reconciles me. But this is, I don't know why they would think what they do. Uh, It sounds odd, but do you have any comments on that, John? Uh, I, I don't. I, I don't know why they would either. I, I was particularly curious about why the fellow Christian, the non-Catholic, might do that. I mean, they're on the. We're at a position in history now where Protestants and Catholics, we're the minority now. We have to bind together, whatever the differences might be. Yeah. I yeah. mean, because the chasm between us and the other side is far more fundamental. I, you know. Uh, this is a very non-Catholic town. It's a very Protestant yeah. uh, part of the country. Um, but I have a number, lots of good minister friends from a variety of denominations, uh, African-American and white and all. That, and, and that is our mentality. Yeah. We need each other to stand against this secular and empty and destructive uh, force in our society. And we stand strongly side by side 
supporting each other on the moral issues. Yeah, yeah. We can't afford to have that kind of, uh, you know, we, we have our disagreements and there's, there may be time for us to get into that. Yeah. But at this point, we have to stand up mm. just for the Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah, yes, you know, yes. Basic rights. We have a question from our studio audience. Ma'am, <laughs> where are you from? I'm from Guatemala, Father. Guatemala, <laughs> love it. And what is your question? Uh, with all these laws against natural law, uh, we ha uh, do we have at our disposal any uh, legal resources to defend it? So do we have resources to defend the natural law uh, in the face of these other yeah. attacks on it? Well, well, maybe the best way to answer the, it's a, <coughs> the boy, it's, it's a deep, and a very broad question, but maybe I could tell a story that, that, that might be the best way to answer it. And, and the story is that by about the beginning of the 20th century, our own legal tradition became positivistic, secular, rejected natural law ideas. And all of our important uh, jurists, lawyers, <coughs> judges embraced this more, uh, again, uh, this positivistic idea of, the, of, uh, of law. When World War II ended, and we had to try the Nazis uh, at Nuremberg. Um, a justice on the Supreme Court, Robert Jackson, who was thoroughly positivistic in his outlook, he was a modern, a child of the modern era, he had to prosecute the Nazis, and the Nazis had a very interesting defense. Their defense was rooted in legal positivism. Their defense was, under which law are you going to try us? We were following our own law, German law. American law and English law did not apply to us. So how can you possibly convict us? And yep. Jackson, the positivist, had to give a closing argument where, well, he didn't use the word natural law, but he sure was referring to it. He drew on natural law principles. And so I think it's always at these times when we're backed up against the wall when people have to appeal to the deeper reality, to the, the idea of a natural law. And uh, in this case, uh, Justice Jackson had to do that in order to, to convict the Nazis. He said in the end, to say that no law was broken would be as if to say no one had died in the war. We know this is not true. So uh, it was a much longer, a very eloquent closing argument, but it was, um, it was a, a brilliant and, 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 and um, uh, stunning in a sense because that wasn't his worldview, but he was brought to the the necessity of recognizing it. Well, what he had was a conflict. His he was facing his own worldview as having been lived out by moral monsters. Yes, that they had used his worldview to execute a good 10 million people in concentration camps to immorally invade people for only reason of conquest yeah, yes. and to bomb other people, uh, non-combatants in London and many other places, yeah. Warsaw. Yes. They, and he... And unfortunately, we did some of that too, yeah, to be fair. Sure, yeah. sure we did, yeah. but it was, uh, we, also had to confront the yeah. the principle of why that was wrong. Yes, yeah. And that the engine did, of, of say uh, bombing, you know, a carpet bombing a city in Germany, mm -hmm. uh, that 
the end, trying to end the war more quickly, did not justify that. Yeah, that's right. It, it, yep. The end does not justify the means. Yeah. We're dealing with principle, yeah. and we had to we make mistakes in the principle, but we also but it was a confrontation of the yeah. same worldview, and yeah. realizing it's morally bankrupt. Yeah. The yeah. Nazis hold the same point of view as positivists here. Yes. Yeah. And this is where it leads. And this is what we saw a couple summers ago mm. as mobs were destroying cities. Yeah. Yes. Yep. This was their immorality on display. And, and again, about uh, a couple of years ago, I was struck in rereading because of a book I'm writing, uh, reading about the French Revolution. Politicians uh, in those years, 1792, 1793 in yes. France, did the same thing politicians did across our cities here. They, out of a combination of cowardice and wanting to curry favor with the mob, um, they stood by and let it happen without intervening. It, it, it's human they nature. They let the uh, mass murder. Yes, yeah. We have another caller on the line. Hello, Thomas? Yes, Father, how are you? Thomas in Tennessee, I know you. Yes, Father. So what so is question, your question for Professor Hill? Yes, my question is this. Why do you think, Professor Hill, and this seems more prevalent uh, and within the last 50 years than it has been even before that, that our young people subscribe to, to atheism, socialism, communism, and extreme left-wing ideology? Because they're being taught that, because our educational institutions have been surrendered to those forces. Yeah. And Howard Zinn's uh, fake history of the Americas is all over the uh, school system. Yeah. I mean, one more example from my own area, and I just noticed this recently. So uh, during uh, the period around 1937, Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed from 1937 to 1942. Uh, he tried to pack the court. His own Democrats, to their credit, stopped it. They, they stopped the, the, you know, the, the packing of the court. But he wound up, because of retirements and deaths, packing uh, the court anyway over the course of five years. He put eight new justices on the Supreme Court. The only one was left was somebody who had waffled anyway and had decided to go his way. Bottom line is, um, Everything changed after that. That period is so fundamental in Roosevelt's decision to do what he did uh, in the packing of the court. I mean, not the way he wanted, but the fact that he owned the court after a few years. Our constitutional law books don't even tell that story. Or there'll be a, I noticed in earlier editions of a book I use, that's, that story would get maybe a couple of paragraphs. Then it was down to a paragraph. Now it's barely a line in the, I mean, these people keep retelling the story from their own vantage point, not just from their own vantage point, they're retelling it from a, a false perspective. They're leaving the most important things out. And so our poor students, and many of them are, they want to learn. They're, they're good students, um, uh, and, and they're being taught this stuff. And uh, another example that would be, I looked at a history book from a public school, uh, and the, um, this, I just was going through it, and it had two paragraphs on George Washington, hmm. 
but two pages on Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I mean, I have, I, I thought Marilyn Monroe was very pretty. Yeah. However, she's still a national hero. Yeah. Ma'am, where are you from? Evansville, Indiana. Welcome. Good to have you here. And your From question one Indiana or comment? to another Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I've been in the educational field for 25 years, nine of those years being in administration. And I went into the administration because I loved helping kids and teaching yep. them and, and in the Catholic education field. Sure. So when kids have problems, I mean, that's how I guided everything is through our mm -hmm. faith. And it just worked so well with me. But the problem is when the parents would get involved and not to say that they don't need to be involved with, you know, the partnership that we should have, but the fact like if I saw a student do something, bring the parent in and we have discussions and then they go home and then I receive a phone call back, they didn't do this or they didn't do that. Um, I was like, were you not sitting in the same meeting that I was in, you know, and that is like being so burdened on principals and administration now that I mean, we do do more of the, the, the trying to find a way, like, how do I explain that to the parents hmm. than doing our education or being our faith-filled leaders. Yeah. That is yeah. another issue, yeah. you know, that I, I certainly came across when I was teaching high school, uh, that parent, even when the kid does something fairly egregious, the parents will say, defend them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's also illogical. You know, you can't say that uh, a kid is doing fine when he's doing something very wrong. Yeah. So it, it's, it's among some of the parents, it's in some of the education, and it's now in law mm. and in administration of our cities. It's a misplaced conception of love. The parents, of course, love their children, right. and uh, they think that it's that they're expressing their love by taking their side. When in fact, it would be uh, a better uh, expression of love if they were to discipline the you know the child appropriately. If indeed the child was was guilty of the offense. My father made it very clear to me through my whole growing up. I'm not your friend. <laughs> I'm your father. Mm. You only get one father. Mm. Go make your own friends. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to make sure that you grow up yeah. correctly. Yeah. And I think my, you know, my father had an eighth grade education, but that didn't mean he was dumb. Yeah. He had a lot of wisdom in, in that. And, you know, and <laughs> there were also plenty of times you said, you're going to thank me for this someday. <laughs> it was never that day. <laughs> <laughs> But it was the, the kind of thing that, you yeah. know, uh, we, parents have to teach their children right and wrong on the basis of principle and not try to get yeah. the kids to like you. Yeah. And for so, that to be true, there have to be principles. There yep. have to be true, you know. And you've got to have a basis yeah. for them and yeah. teach it. Yeah. Again, this book is, is really worth getting to get a better ability to think through the issues than you're going to get from the media, the social media. They're not going to mm. help you think. Mm. Uh, they just want to use bad language. Mm. And, you know, a lot, and even a lot of our politicians, educators, the book is called After the Natural Law, How the Classical Worldview Supports 
our modern moral and political values. It's by my guest, John Lawrence Hill. You can get it at EWTNRC.com, where it's item number 40172. It's really worthwhile to learn how to think clearly in a world that's very muddled. John, thank you very much for being with us. Appreciate you taking the time to come here to write the book and help us with this. And may the Lord bless all of you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you great strength. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Also want you to remember two of my Jesuit brothers who were just murdered by the drug cartels in Mexico, along with the many tens of thousands who are being killed in the drug trade. Stay away from all that evil and pray for those to have a repentance. Also, thank you for your support for this program and all of our shows. Keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. We'll pay our bills, too. Thank you. <laughs>